Joshua. Now we've got Dolezal, and we've got my favorite Czech translator's version, which is Dolezal. What do we go with? <laughs> well, I go by Dolezal, but you're right. In Prague, it would be Dolezal. And we happen to have met in Prague at Richard Katrovis's writer's workshop uh, a couple of summers ago. Fantastic program. So enjoyed meeting you. And I've described it as a gathering of true believers. So many places have a low opinion of art or see it as frivolous or childish to really care deeply about art. And so to be gathered with other writers who fully committed to the craft for three weeks was a real privilege. You also wrote a beautiful, what, journal of going back, uh, going and seeking out your roots uh, nearby. Yeah, I have a Substack newsletter called The Recovering Academic, and this actually began before Prague. So I went to the program partly as an outgrowth of my genealogical research, and the reason I was doing this research is because I had given up a faculty position. I resigned a tenured professorship in Iowa and moved with my family to Pennsylvania. And so I was kind of going through this identity transformation and wanting to go back to roots and sort of think through my family story. <clears throat> and so I'd done some research on my father's side, the immigrant story of Cardell Dolajal, who was my first immigrant ancestor from, from my Czech side. And his family, you know, came from Moravia. So to go back to the ancestral places, to go to the homes where people had been born in my family, and also to go to the graveyards was uh, part of why I went to Prague. Well, this brings up uh, thoughts about why write a book. And I think it, it really does have a lot to do with your own identity. But uh, we can get into that in a moment because I, I still haven't introduced you. You are a writer and an award-winning teacher with 20 years of experience in publishing and editing. Your mentor was Ted Kuzer. Mm -hmm. former Poet Laureate of the United States and Pulitzer Prize winner. Your work has appeared in more than 30 magazines, including the Kenyan Review and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Your memoir, Down from the Mountaintop, From Belief to Belonging, was shortlisted for the 2016 William Soroyan International Prize. We mentioned your substack called The Recovering Academic. You've also, uh, you are also a book coach, which is why <laughs> you are here to, today with me using tools that you have honed over the last number of years as a professional writer. Welcome, Josh, to The Bibliophile. Well, thanks so much, Nigel. I'm just going to rhyme off some of the definitions of a book coach that I came across on, on the internet. A uh, book coach is an editor, a mentor, a cheerleader equipped to help writers at any stage of the writing process. 
Let's just leave it at that. It brings up mm. uh, Robert Darnton's communication circuit for me from from the writer to the reader, everything in between. Is that is that what a book coach is? Yeah, I think that's fair. I should say that my own coaching is is still fairly new, <clears throat> although it feels completely instinctive. You know, as a lifelong teacher, it, it's a very natural outgrowth of what I did for 20 years as a teacher. Yeah, what's the difference? Uh, well, the difference is focus. So as a teacher, you know, you're helping students with research papers or, you know, in some cases with personal essays. So it's it's a question of scale, of ambition, of, you know, the level of the writing. So right now I'm working with people who typically have an idea for a memoir, but they need help planning it, coming up with a drafting strategy. But as you said, a book coach can help with any stage of the process. So after a draft is finished, you know, I can certainly come in with developmental editing and help take a manuscript to the next level. So if someone came to me with a manuscript, if if someone had written their way to a complete draft and said, you know, I've taken this as far as I can, can you help me take it further? Then either I could do that as an editor separately, you know, just take the manuscript, do my inline comments and and send that back. Or I could do it as a coach through a series of sessions where I might introduce, you know, writing concepts and say, you know, this, this tool could really improve like the scene. Like what? Well, for instance, defamiliarization is one of those tools that really resonated with my students over the years and I think is underutilized in memoir in particular. This comes from a chapter in Charles Baxter's excellent craft book, uh, Burning Down the House, where he he shares several several writing tools for, for fiction is, is his intent, but I think it works just as well for literary memoir. So the idea of defamiliarization is incorporating some element of surprise. Horror films do this very well. So you might know The Shining, the adaptation of um, Stephen King's novel. There's a scene where Jack Nicholson's character goes into this room that he's been forbidden to enter. And there's a beautiful woman in the bathtub and he embraces her, but she turns into a corpse in his arms. And then he backs away through the door shaking. Um, so that's an example of a surprising reversal. And it haunts you because you didn't see it coming. You know, so something like beauty is is suddenly flipped into something, you know, revolting. The writer Ben Percy uses an example from Jaws where, you know, these three characters are sitting in the ship and they're and they're drinking and they're telling stories and they're laughing. And then, you know, one of them tells this very sobering story about a shark attack. And, you know, the whole mood shifts and and it haunts you as as a result because you've been made defenseless by the laughter and then the the sobering narrative hits more forcefully but i'll give you one more example from baxter's chapter that's a little bit more innocuous and perhaps more accessible he describes going to the funeral of someone he didn't know and listening to the same eulogies that are always told about how wonderful a person this was. And he said what he wanted was a recital of the deceased's failures and oddities, things that make them seem real. So as a result of not getting that, he just immediately forgot the person after walking out of the service, which is the last thing you want from a memorial. So when I wrote eulogies for my grandparents who who died a couple of years ago, you know, I wanted to include some of those moments that were rough edges 
You know, I wanted to include my grandfather's come over, you know, which he was convinced was fooling everyone, but <laughs> would slide off his head at uh, inopportune times and, you know, create some, some comic effect or my grandmother who was a lovely person. And, you know, I admired her so much, but she was fairly cruel in her younger years and would terrorize my mother when she would visit by dragging her finger across the top of the refrigerator to see how much dust she could collect, you know? So when you're developing a character, you don't want all the arrows pointing in one direction. You don't want them to be too heroic or too mm-hmm. villainous. Yeah, You yeah. want there to be some texture and layers and those. Some complication. Form- yeah. Those, those are forms that defamiliarization can take as well. Okay. But that would that would be a tool that I would bring to a writer who already had a manuscript and wanted to level up. Um, I would say the bulk of my work so far has been on the planning stage. And that's, I think, what triggered this conversation, because I wrote, I wrote a post about how to come up with this, a three-part strategy for drafting your book. Um, and that's kind of what I've been doing more of. What is that three-part strategy? Well... This is what's worked for me, and it's kind of a middle ground between the camp of pantsers, as they call themselves, people who think that it's better to just write blindly. You you sit down and you just follow the story blindly wherever it goes. If you have a lot of talent and you don't get writer's block, that might work for you. Um, The other extreme is represented by Lisa Cron and I believe also by James Patterson. So Patterson is an obsessive outliner. I think by the time Patterson actually writes a sentence, you know, he's he's basically plotted out the scene. I don't know what he discovers in the in the writing process because he's mm-hmm. basically got it all written in outline form already. Lisa yeah. Cron recommends something similar, which is that you you write the ending scene and then you reverse engineer the whole narrative to build toward that. That you have she has these very detailed templates for how you write scenes and you scaffold sort of external conflict onto inner conflict. And, you know, it's another form of, of outlining. Neither of those approaches work for me. I need to have a sense of where I'm going, but I don't want it to be so predetermined that there's nothing for me to discover along the Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. So I use the strategy to write two books, my published memoir and my unpublished novel, which is still looking for a home. And the strategy was to begin with a conflict or a problem or a set of questions that that were urgent and I knew would have to be resolved in some way. And to also identify a turning point, what I call a reckoning, where some verdict will have to come in on those questions, some answer, some resolution. There There will be a kind of judgment day on the conflicts that are set in motion at the beginning. Payoff for the reader. For sure. Uh, and it could be unresolved. That could be the payoff. Nothing happens, but but it will have to go somewhere. And you identify kind of that all hands on deck scene where there will be a reckoning. <clears throat> so those are the, the two really key benchmarks. And then for me, it's helpful to identify some tentpole scenes to get from the beginning to that turning point. So these are, you know, to get to that climax these things will have to happen. And so you will write toward the first one and then the second one and the third one. And it's more of a sketch than a detailed set of directions. And I believe there's room for discovery 
along the way. Okay. Sounds to me like this would should work for any kind of writing, not just fiction, fiction and nonfiction. You you just want people to read your stuff, keep reading it, right? Well, sure. And if you know, the cliche is no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. If you're not discovering something as you're yeah. developing this manuscript, then it's gonna feel flat, it's gonna feel cliched or you know, overdetermined to the reader. I'll just right. give you a I've been speaking kind of vaguely about this strategy. So I'll give you an example for my novel, which I wrote in two months using this strategy or drafted in two months. I had a character who was living in Iowa, kind of just drifting. He was 30 years old. He's, you know, sort of still young, but he's kind of squandered some years without a purpose. And his home is in Idaho. So he left his home. He's kind of living in this place. He doesn't see himself staying in for the long term. He's in a dead end relationship. You know, there's nothing really happening for him that's that's meaningful or purposeful. And his family is far away. <clears throat> During that time, his uncle goes missing, has drifted into this wilderness area, and later on his remains are found. And there are questions about whether this might have been related to a religious cult that his uncle was involved in. But whatever the case, my character, Ben, has to go home for the funeral. And so what I'm setting up at the beginning is this kind of existential problem. He doesn't really have a purpose. He knows that he's kind of wasting his life. He's going to have to figure that out. Um, he has run away from these things in his family and in his past. He can't avoid forever. He's living in a kind of denial. And so he's going to have to go home and face all those things. So there's a kind of existential reckoning that will happen, but there's also the, the physical return to his home. And so the funeral service for me was a place where all the main characters, surviving characters will be gathered. And that was a place where I knew there would have to be some reckoning, you know, okay. the denial would have to break. I didn't know at the time that there would be violence there, but that's part of what came out of discovery and in writing it. But the tentpole scenes were, I knew that to get from Iowa to Idaho, you know, he would have to break up with this woman that he's in a dead-end relationship with. He would have to have some kind of um, reckoning with his boss at this bicycle shop. And he would have to drive, you know, make the physical journey from the Midwest back to the Mountain West. And so those are kind of, I could see them ahead on the path like cairns. You know, there's a stack of rocks there. There's a yep. stack of rocks there. Yep. I know I'm going to have to get there. I just don't know what the steps are in between. And that was enough to kind of pull me forward through the chapters. And I hope write scenes that were fresh for me and, and will be fresh for readers. So this is a kind of a template that you would bring to the table pretty well every conversation you have with a client. I mean, the, the first thing you want to do is determine what that person wants to do with the, the book. If, again, if it's fiction or nonfiction or a memoir or, or a catalog, as in, in, in my case. But it, it seems to me that, that is, that's probably the most important question. What, what do I want this thing to do, right? Absolutely. Nigel, in your case, you've already got a body of work, so you're a bit more like the person with the manuscript that wants to level it up. Um, or you have a body of work that needs to become something else. And in that stage, you might be more in the, in the planning. 
step of the process. But mm-hmm. uh, if, if someone comes to me and they have, so two of my clients are memoirists or aspiring memoirists. One of them has <clears throat> what I believe is just an amazing story. I know she was raised in East London, but was sent back home to Barbados where her family's from at a, at a certain stage kind of unwillingly, you know, she, she didn't know her grandparents there, wasn't connected with them. So it was kind of a homecoming, but also kind of a deportation, you know, kind of a forced removal of sorts. And there's a whole lot of, you know, plantation history in Barbados wrapped up in this. There's, there's a lot of identity layers, layers of colonial history. It's a fascinating, she wants to write a memoir and she's got ideas upon ideas upon ideas. Part of my work was helping corral them into something that would have a kind of integrity through the narrative, a kind of backbone yeah. that she could follow. So this method that I described to you, so what is the core problem or set of questions that you're going to try to tackle here? Is it about you personally, your identity? Is it about colonial history? Like there are several yeah. priorities that could be elevated. So you got to kind of sort through those things. One so this tool is that pre, this is this is sort of before an editor gets a hold of it. And this is what I'm trying to get at is what's the difference between say just an editor and and what you do and then of course there's also an agent the agent's already mm-hmm. gonna basically have an in for you to get the thing published so that's their advantage but you're starting off with them well you jump in at different places but you're doing something that helps them to uh, most often to determine exactly what they want to do right uh, well, let's say that someone knows that they want to write a memoir. They already know what they want to do, but they're maybe not sure what that memoir is actually about. Mm-hmm. Finding the core narrative requires some work. A different writer might know exactly what it's about and be able to persevere through the whole drafting process and then need help with craft, you know, elevating the craft at the sentence level, at the scene level. You're trying to help them to be like an like a athletic coach. You're trying to help them to be the best that they can possibly be. Is that what you're doing? For sure. But But for the clients that come to me in the planning stage, I'm just trying to help the dream become a reality right. because there are a lot of books that don't even find it to the first draft. It's hard work to write a book for sure. <laughs> it defeats a lot of people. Right. And I think that's partly because people are trying to pants it. You know, they, they don't have a plan yeah. or they get burned out by the re- relentless outlining. So both of those can be kind of self-defeating. Pants. Sorry, by pants, do you mean the seed of your pants? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's, that's kind of a shorthand word for... <laughs> For writers who just, you know, improvise and don't have a plan or any kind of outline. Okay. But let me, let me throw out two more tools. If, if you'll indulge me based on what you've told me about your project, which I expect we'll get to these, either one of these might be useful to you. So these come from Jessica Abel's book out on the wire, which is all about the craft of radio storytelling. It's a graphic novel, which is fun to read, but it's all about the art of telling, absorbing radio stories like This American Life or, you know, The Moth. Radio Hour kind of uses a similar formula. What people at This American Life and Snap Judgment and other prominent podcasts do 
oral history or story driven podcasts is they try to simplify the story into what's called a focus sentence. And the focus sentence is a kind of template. And if you can't express the core of your story in this one sentence, then you don't understand it very well. An elevator pitch. Even shorter than that. The unique selling point. Yeah. So somebody, fill in the blank, does something, fill in the blank, because, fill in the blank, but you have a a main (laughs) character. They're taking a chief action. There's a motivation for the action. And there's an obstacle or series of obstacles to that. So in, in the case of the client that I mentioned, this could be an ancestor who's the main character taking certain action, or it could be her going on a quest, you know, for, for identity, or as, as we, as we discussed in one session, there's a deed to land family land that has been elusive. So searching for the property deed could be part of this focus sentence, but, but the core of the story needs to be reducible to those terms. And if you can do that before you even get started, it's a miniature version of the plan that I just described, because you have the action, there will be some resolution of whether that action is successful or not. And the obstacles to it provide the tentpole scenes to get there. The what scenes? The tentpole scenes. Tentpole. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I'm mixing metaphors here, but you can either think of I your book as... I was thinking cairns, too. You got cairns in there as well. So, okay. <laughs> either your book is like a tent that you're assembling and you have the poles kind of holding it up as you assemble it so it doesn't collapse around you. Or it's like a journey with the cairns. Yeah, either right. either one of those metaphors will work. Okay. Okay. The, okay. the other tool that I'll throw out is the XY formula. And this this might be more like your selling point or selling pitch. I'm writing a story about X. What's interesting about it is Y. That seems really bland, but it's really hard. Let's say you're doing a story about, I'm doing a story about a homeless person. What's interesting about it is he got into a shelter got rehabilitated and has now, you know, got his first full-time job and and a home of his own. That's not really what's interesting about it, right? There's no bite to that. There's no surprise. So I'm doing a story about a homeless person, but what's interesting about it is part of him still misses being homeless. Now you got a different hook, right? That's the question you ask yourself. What's interest? What is actually interesting about this, right? The X, The XY formula, yeah. Right. It seems to me, though, uh, that what what really interests me is the style, how it's told. And that's not something that you can teach. You can't teach style, I don't think. Can you? Uh, well, let's take the example of someone who brings me a manuscript and asks me to take it to another level. Mm-hmm. You're right. I can't, from scratch, teach someone style but I can help their style get out of its own way. So for instance, my mentor, Ted Kuser, has a lovely chapter in his his book, Writing Brave and Free, where it's called transparency. And he uses the analogy of an Ansel Adams photograph in a frame. So you're at a gallery, you're looking at an Ansel Adams photograph. Ideally, you're, you're drawn into Taos or whatever desert or mountain landscape he's photographed. And you're only able to do that if the the glass is perfectly clean. Mm -hmm. If there's Mm -hmm. thumbprints or fingerprints or smudges on the glass, then you're taken out of the photograph and you're 
made aware of this barrier between you and the thing you're trying to see. And so whether it's wordiness, whether it is um, cliche, whether it is redundancy, I mean, there are plenty of examples of someone can have a style, but they can take it over the top to the point where I'm not getting the style, I'm getting the excess, and that's keeping me out of it. What what you're telling me is that you zoom in and out as a coach, you, and, and not and not just from the text itself. You you can, I assume, zoom right out to the point where, okay, what kind of what do you want the book to look like? Uh, how do you want to get the book published? What literary agents are you going to identify? Is this this is what you do as well, right? Well, yeah, now we're talking much later in the process. You've got a finished manuscript, you've owned it, you know, you've revised it. And at that stage, I would be able to help someone with a query letter, with a pitch, mm-hmm. with a pr- book proposal to a small press. And I would help someone think through the strategy and they would benefit from some of the mistakes I made with my first book, for instance, mm-hmm. where all I wanted was a book, you know, I was an academic. I wasn't trying to make a lot of money on it or anything. I just wanted to hold the thing in my hands. And so I was foolishly querying agents at the same time that I was sending book proposals to small presses. And I was getting some responses from agents, some manuscript requests. And I should have let that run its course. I should have started with just the agents, given the commercial Mm -hmm. market its due. And if that dried up, I should have moved to the smaller press. But instead, I got an offer from... The University of Iowa Press, and I took it. And you know, the agents—I never knew what would have happened with them. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, that press, though. No, it's a good press. But here's here's what I learned from it: when you publish at a nonprofit press, you might have sealed your fate about the commercial market. You might never find your way back to an agent because an agent wants to make money, and they're going to look at your book sales and. The distribution that a nonprofit press sees as successful Uh is very different from the distribution that a New York publishing house does. So my book did fine by those standards, but not well enough to probably impress an agent about the potential of my novel to make them money, if that makes sense. Right. What about qualifications? To be able to, to offer constructive, objective guidance regarding this project. Uh, it's, it seems to me that like, anyone can get into this business, right? Like anyone can <laughs> sit, hold up their shingle and say, yeah, I, I published a book and yeah, I'm, I'm a book coach. As opposed to, again, that the real juice is, is where is the agent. You want an agent because they, they'll do editing. They'll do all the stuff you've talked about, right? So uh, no, 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 no. Uh, the agent won't help you plan a book if if you can't draft it. An agent wouldn't help with that. They might if you've already got a track record. Let's let's say that if if your next book, I think they might. If you're a successful novelist and you want to bounce some ideas around. Your your agent would do that for you. Yeah, possibly. But in that case, yeah, those those kinds of writers aren't hiring book coaches. True enough. <laughs> it's it's debut writers more so who yeah. need a book coach. And yeah. so your point about credentials is a fair one. I mean, there are certifications that one can get. You know, you can take courses and get a badge of some kind to be a certified coach. I think proof of concept is more important. 
And so my two long-term clients came from an online creative writing course that I offered. It was only four weeks long, but, you know, we met for 90 minutes once a week for four weeks and I introduced writing tools to them. I gave feedback on their writing and two of them asked me, do you offer coaching? And I'd never thought of it. And I said, well, I, I would for you. And so that's how my business, you know, came to be. And I've since worked with a couple of other clients. One of my Substack readers has approached me about help with preparing an op-ed for the Chronicle since I've been published there. Another client came from LinkedIn. He was a medical student applying for residencies, needed help with her personal statement, which is a kind of story, professional story. It's it's a complex document because you need about 700 words, but you have to convey a lot of information in 700 words, and you have to do it in a way that will keep the attention of fatigued admissions committee members, right, who are reading hundreds of these things. And so in all of those cases, I think it was a consultation or it was a class or, you know, it wasn't my resume that convinced them. It was a sense, so oh, this is a good fit. This is somebody who knows what they're doing, who can who can help me get to where I want to be. So that's right. why I offer, if you have a book project, I'll meet with you, you know, for a free consultation and just give you a sense of how it'll go. And of course, at any step along the way, you could find another book coach. It's the same as hiring an attorney, right? You're nowhere near as expensive as an attorney. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And I guess, again, it's like any kind of partnership or relationship. You're going into it looking for a whole range of different things, right? You want you want specific advice. You want big picture. You want hand holding. You want you want cheerleading. You want you want a whole bunch of stuff. It depends on the client. Yeah. So there are some things that a book coach can't do. Of course, the book coach can't write the book for you. A book coach can't make some decisions for you. you know, there are choices that you have to make as a writer that aren't the coach's choices. And that can be frustrating. What do you mean? Well, for instance, in this case of a personal statement for med school, there sometimes if you give your draft to multiple mentors, you'll get competing advice. Somebody says, oh, you should open with this. Someone says, oh, you should open yeah. with that. I, as a book coach, can offer my opinion, but I can't tell you for, for sure that this is the superior method. Because it could be for one program application, it could not be for the for the next one. Um, at some point, you as the writer are going to have to decide. All right, I've got these different suggestions, but it's my project. I have to take responsibility and make the decision mm-hmm. for myself based on the available information. Right, right. And and what do I want the book to do? And uh, and how do I want to tell my story? I guess the other thing that's interesting too is the book coach. I mean, it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of need to know what's going on in the in the whole sort of field, the whole industry, the marketplace. That's that's part of your job too, right? Yeah. Well, so I had another friend approach me. This is not a client. This is just an acquaintance, um, writer friend who has a draft and is thinking about publishing it. And, and said, you know, I really want to get this out one way or the, or the other in the next year. Right. I set the goal for myself. I met the goal, gave myself a break, you know, did the Stephen King thing of put it on the shelf for a few months, come back to it with fresh eyes, 
I'm going to revise it. And then what are your thoughts on next steps? Now, I gave him some advice that may have seemed discouraging. I said, well, you could hire me or some other developmental editor to really help you polish the thing to put the best face forward. But you might also give some thought to just what has commercial appeal right now before you even go that route. Because querying agents is just a thankless task. It used to be that when you queried someone, they would do you the courtesy of replying, but that's not true anymore. Most people just won't even bother to reject your manuscript. They'll just ghost you. So you might, you might be able to grind away at it. Like a lot of people are good at, you know, just send out five queries a day or whatever, as long as you need to. But let's say you get to 150 queries and four months have gone by and you're not hearing from anyone. I don't know. You could you could spend a lot of time doing that. And if you've not thought about whether you actually have a case to make that your yeah. book will make that agent money, you could spend that time more productively on self-publishing. So yeah. in this case, he's a white man in his um, past middle age. He's telling a story that doesn't fit into a niche necessarily. It's it's more of a story about identity, business, you know, career and identity, things like that. It's compelling. I've, I've read it. I think it's good writing. But I also think my novel is good writing. And I've queried over 100 agents for that and had not even, I've had two full manuscript requests out of out of all of that. So to your point, you read writing for the craft, but I'm not sure that's how a lot of commercial writing gets published. It gets published more so on theme or topic. And if you're writing a memoir and you're not Prince Harry and you don't have 17,000 followers on Twitter or Instagram at a minimum, you're at a real disadvantage. How are you going to convince the agent? And in that case, you might be better off either channeling your energy into self-publishing if your goal is to just have the book in whatever form. Have the book, have the book, (laughs) and then have it hang around for 50 years and then have someone discover that book. And then then everyone gets excited and they have a big publishing firm jump on it. Right? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, I mean that that might be a good scenario, but the dream, I'm sure I suppose. That I suppose there are something. plenty of plenty of narratives moldering in drawers that were never discovered as well. Right. <laughs> no, but my my point was to him first reality check. You're not going to query an agent and have this out in the world in a year. So if you really want to run the gamut of agents, plan for two to three years for that process to run its course. Pretty thankless, did you say? That can be tough to hear. Hmm. Well, getting on to then the purpose of a book, like you're going to go to a book coach because you you want to produce a book and you've got all sorts of motivations behind that, right? Sure. Some of them uh, personal, maybe some of them financial. Yeah, which is uh, my one of my projects is, okay, I want to do a catalog of the podcasts that I've produced over the years. And uh, a catalog is a is a sales document. So I've got that in my mind. But I'm, uh, I also want to write as well as I can about what I've done over the last 10 years or so. So I can be proud of a beautiful book that I've produced. So maybe that maybe they conflict with each other or don't complement each other. I don't know. So I would go to a uh, you, the book coach, and say, well, what do you think? 
What do you say? Yeah. Well, so the the catalog itself, I suppose, would be a document more like this personal statement for it's a shorter kind of document, right? But it's meant to encompass the bigger the bigger archive. Now you say a book, so I don't know if you're talking about a collection of transcripts or if you're talking about something more like an album. If these are podcasts, if you're doing an audio album of sorts um, that is prefaced by a catalog or some kind of textual introduction, um, which which of those no. do you mean? It'd be more of a, it would be descriptions of each podcast beautifully designed with an introduction uh, and it's a catalog. It's a catalog mm -hmm. of the collection. Yeah. So the question is, so what do I put in there? What do I put in there? I want to convince someone that this has value, but I also want to, uh, I also want to have something of myself and my own activities and my, mm -hmm. my life experience in there. So as a, I'm asking you as a book coach, uh, what would you do? Well, so I've done a little looking, Nigel, and you have 650 episodes. Would you be making any choices or would all 650 be going into this catalog? Well, I kind of would like my whole oeuvre to go into the catalog. Be a big fat catalog. Mm. I, that's that's my initial take, but uh, I'm interested in hearing what the book coach has to say. Yeah, so that's where I wonder about the potentially diminishing returns of the size of the catalog. So as, as I understand it, you're going to use this to hopefully attract buyers who would have access to this, to this archive, to the full oeuvre. How many people who would purchase that would have 650 hours to devote to listening to the whole thing? Would that be perhaps a formidable obligation that they would feel they were taking on by purchasing it? Would it be perhaps better if you had the hundred best no, I'm thinking description of each one of them, short description. They can leaf through that. And then I would spend my introduction convincing them that, yeah, actually, this is a, this is a, this has got research value. This is a, this, the, the, the conversations are, are worth studying and they provide some interesting information about the, you know, the, the book at the turn of the 21st century. All right. So the last bit is really interesting. Um, so the research potential, I, I like these two things. So you gave me a little snippet of what it's about, and I want to kind of follow that thread. The, the book around the turn of the century. So that would be a starting point uh, for your narrative. But the other thing that I was perhaps misunderstanding earlier, this is not a catalog that you would expect a buyer to digest in full, but it would be more like access to a database. So if someone were to pay a subscription to a database for research purposes, they would have a vast archive, but they would never read all of it. It would just be there if they had a particular question they wanted to answer or something to explore, they could. And the depth and the scope would be the appeal in that case. You wouldn't want a limited archive for research. Is that fair? Yeah, it'd be like Sting's, uh, Sting's backlist. That's what we're talking about. This well, but things things backlist, <laughs> and I'm doing a little description of each one of the songs. 
Well, but now we're, we're, I think, confusing the two metaphors because earlier I was thinking in terms of sting and, and the more curated kinds of best of, right. That. Right. That but I, he sold his, he sold his archive, uh, Josh, for $300 million. He, he, he okay. sold backlist and various other, a uh, quote, artists have been selling theirs for enormous amounts of money. So this is content that has some value. Uh, so again, in terms of yeah. you know looking at, at the book that I want to produce, yeah, I want it to sell the value of something, and so I need advice on mm, how best to go about doing that. Okay, are you ready for a little tough love? Love tough love, yeah. <laughs> you know, I might start crying is... though. I might start crying. <laughs> <laughs> but but your mention of Sting is is really interesting because right. uh, here's somebody who is a global celebrity who can sell a backlist with no curation, right? But but the typical approach for even a musician with some appeal take a yeah. smaller, I don't know, take a folk a, a lesser known take Nick Drake for instance, you know, a, I think a pretty solid musician, but kind of more on the indie circuit. Definitely nowhere near the the universal appeal of Sting or U2 or right. something like that. Right. right. You know, there probably would be a niche audience for the whole exhaustive backlog of Nick Drake songs. But if if I'm the publisher, I'm probably going to make a little bit more money selling the best of or a curated version. Right. And so if right. if the music album is your is your reference point, then my suggestion would be smaller, less is more, mm -hmm. you know, you've got already on your website, some highlights, you've got Margaret Atwood and some other heavy hitters that you've already kind of featured. Yeah. So yeah. think about a series that, that would have that kind of appeal where it's <laughs> don't want to undersell myself, but I wouldn't be in that list, you know, cause I don't, I don't have reach. Nobody knows. No, nobody but, knows but, who I am. but Josh, we're talking about a book, uh, book coaches here. And that's interesting. Uh, like I'm trying to document all the different uh, roles that are played along Darnton's communication circuit, and this is one of them. So, uh, you know, again, it's uh, like my approach with this catalog in terms of selling its value is, well, yeah, I'm well, I'm trying to document everything that's or all sorts of interesting things that are going on with the book at this time. So, mm. yeah, please don't undersell, undersell yourself. <laughs> well, so here's... Here's the frustrating thing that a coach might tell you. You could make one of two choices or five choices on this spectrum. You know, one choice would be no curation whatsoever. It's the whole enchilada, the whole archive, take it or leave it. These are all, My, yeah, this is descriptions of 600 uh, plus yeah. introduction that says, here what we're, here's what we're doing. We're documenting what's going on. This has value and um, maybe you should look at it. Well, if it, if it were the Sting backlog, then the reason someone would buy that would not likely be for research. It would be for yeah, fandom, for, en for enjoyment, right? So yes, in your exactly. case, in your case, the full backlog, I think, makes more sense if you're able to pitch it as a research tool for someone yes. who wouldn't digest the whole thing for recreational purposes, but actually would be, this might be a scholar or or someone <clears throat> who's, a, who's a kind of independent um, researcher. Yeah, yeah, a bibliophile, exactly. <laughs> so you have a better sense of, of what that audience is. However, I think the full archive would likely sell fewer copies than a more curated version. 
that were that were smaller that had a clearer kind of narrative to it that wasn't just everything. So those are choices. I'm not that trying you to sell make. the catalog though. That's the thing. I'm not trying to sell. I mean, I'm going to do a hundred of these maybe. I I don't okay. care about the sales of the catalog. I don't care about who buys it. It's mostly. Okay. It's just a. It's just a a sales tool, but also a memoir uh, at the same yeah. time. I, I'm okay. I don't expect this thing to be a, it's not going to be its best seller. I understand that there's maybe 50 people in the world that are going to be at all interested in this book. Well, there you go. That's yeah. it. You may or may not be one of them. Probably not. <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, that's helpful, Nigel, because in that case, your goal is not to maximize or optimize marketing or sales so that clarifies the choice so the curated version you know the best of is not for you what you what you really want is to preserve the integrity of the whole for personal reasons and then if there is commercial value so be it but if there's not you'll live with that is that fair yeah and again i think the document is designed to describe what i think the value of the work is. Yeah. So that's where we would direct our attention then is to yeah. this document. And right. you said a sentence some time ago, history of the book around the turn of the century. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, basically interviewing as many different uh, best practitioners in all sorts of different roles as they pertain to the book. So yes, uh, authors, uh, literary, you know, some of the best literary agents in the world, some of the greatest publishers that are alive, the 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 greatest bookseller, quote unquote, alive today. These these are these are some of the people that are in conversation with me in in this archive. Mm -hmm. And so is there. I'm thinking of the XY formula and the focus sentence here. Yeah. So someone is you. So so Nigel Beale does something, interviews mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Because what's the because? The the book? Mania. Book love? Mania. Mania. Uh, <laughs> Obsession. Just, yes. Yeah. Passion. Okay. And what's the but? So Nigel interviews people. Up but no one all... gives a shit, Josh. No one gives a shit. No one gives a shit. That's the but. And yet you have listeners and you're trying to market it to them. So that's that's like a big but for your project, right? How would you convince people in the catalog to give a shit? No, this is the question. Exactly. I need to drill down on that that question and come up with uh, reasons for them giving a shit. I don't mean to be frustrating, but this is kind of like no, this is the, this is the process. I think uh, is this a process? <laughs> is this are we duplicating or showing uh, showing the type of conversation you might have as a book coach are we Ab absolutely because okay. some of these choices are yours to make and not mine right um, so i was kind of steering the ship you're being a like bit. a psychoanalyst here you're not answering anything you're just putting <laughs> questions to me well it's your work to do right um no here's a suggestion and it could be many different forms of this 
you need to raise the stakes of this project. You know, what's at stake if somebody doesn't buy it? Uh, what's the cost of not buying it? What are they What are they losing? Right. We are living in an age of AI. There's going to be more and more phony shit pumped out. Books that are in existence are being mined by chat GPT and other clones to generate new material that's imitative, that's, you know, some inferior version of what humans have produced before. And so to some extent, the book may be an endangered species. Bibliophilia that your series represents may be fading. People might have already not given a shit for some time. Interest might have been fading, but I don't know, maybe the prospect of extinction, extinction of the book as we've known it, could be a kind of urgency. And you have this archive that represents a time capsule of sorts of the book at the turn of the century, like you said, before it became extinct. I don't know if that works for you, but that would be a way of answering the so what question or the XY formula. I'm I'm making this catalog. What's interesting about it is why. And that solving for that why is going to be your big challenge. And if you don't want to make choices that limit the scope into a curated collection that you can give a narrower theme of literary celebrities like Margaret Atwood, for instance, or influencers or kind of um, power brokers in, in the book space. If you don't want to go that route, then you have to zoom out and think, the collection as a whole, the the big and the small, the celebrity and the unknown, all of that is part of this. And here's why you should care. Right. Do you ask that question of all your clients? Why you should care? Why why should the reader care? Yeah, it's. I mean, it sounds like a brutal and insensitive question, but if you can't answer the the so what then you're kind of lost, right? In memoir, part of the secret to this is tapping into a larger human narrative. You know, so if I'm writing about fatherhood, you know, my own joys and sorrows as a father may or may not resonate with the reader, but if it's really just contained to my world, then I haven't answered the so what question. I need to think about the larger crisis of masculinity, for instance, or the sexual revolution or feminism or other things that are more universal layers of that experience that will add a so what dimension, I think, to my own experience. So in your case, you've been doing a passion project and it's fantastic. And I'm so glad to have been a part of it. You are kind of hinting at this larger universal thing of book love, book obsession, apprenticeship to the craft lifelong devotion, you know, that is something that's bigger than you, bigger than your series. And I think there's some potential in it, if that helps. It does help a lot. Thanks. I like this zooming in and out, uh, just to in closing here. It seems to me that uh, as we talked earlier in in the program about about craft and for, for me style is so important. It, it's It's about it's all about style for me. Uh, I, there's so many stories out there that I don't really get, care about. I care about beautiful, thrilling style. And is, isn't that just about 
it's a reflection of your own experience, the, the words and, and world that you've encountered. And yet, if you don't make it big picture, like you've said, then maybe it doesn't resonate. Is it like this big and small stuff? Is is this is this an important part of what you do? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Now, now we're talking a little bit about audience, and that is one of the key concepts that I can bring at any stage of the process. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story if we have time for it. There, there are so many high school poets who wear black and smoke cigarettes in alleys and think that they're just misunderstood and they just have not figured out how to make choices in anticipation of an audience to cultivate a compelling poem or or story with the reader in mind. They're, they're thinking more about their own self-expression than they are about a kind of gift that they're giving to the reader. And you can express yourself with the reader in mind. You know, it's it's more of a, instead of being wrapped up in yourself, it's the secret to a good relationship, a kind of reciprocity. So I learned this by working with Ted Kuzer. This was a watershed moment in my own writing development because <clears throat> I had written a lot before that and hadn't really published much. And I kind of had this adolescent idea of being misunderstood. I was writing an essay about firefighting. So I grew up in Montana and I fought forest fires with the Forest Service through the summer months as a college student. It's part of how I paid for college and graduate school. And I had a lot of fun experiences getting sent. You know, I got sent to Northern Alberta one summer. I've written about that. I was sent to California and Arizona many times. And so you go to these camps and they're kind of like tent villages with abominable porta potties and all kinds of things. But I was describing a scene where I was waking up in my tent in fire camp and I was trying to be vivid as you're supposed to be with sensory detail. And so it was the warmth of the, of the mummy bag, you know, how you, in a sleeping bag, it generates this kind of perfect equilibrium of warmth around your body like a cocoon. The light, you know, in the dome of the tent, something I was describing, and the smell of wood smoke in my clothes. But then I described the color of my briefs. I was wearing black briefs. <laughs> and I remember when Anything I was... Anything on those briefs? Nope, just solid black, you know, okay. perfect for firefighting. It was a practical choice on my part, rather than tidy whities But... Ted Kuzer immediately interrupted me. I was reading this aloud as a draft. And he mm-hmm. said, I don't, I don't care about what color your underwear was. Mm-hmm. That's overcooked was his word. And so over the course of that semester, Ted would occasionally write overcooked. I'd, I'd crossed a line. I'd, I'd stopped my, the spell that I was casting with the narrative was yeah. broken for him. He stopped believing in it or caring. And so I think that's the negotiation that all writers are are looking for. And then maybe part of what you're looking for in the catalog, who is your audience? Um, can be a small audience, but are there choices that you can make along the way to not break the spell for them or, you know, to not add something that's overcooked or, or too much or, or unessential. So those are, those are choices that I think all writer makes at different stages. Hmm. Okay. So how do uh, listeners cook, uh, cook with you? How do you, how do they cook with uh, this, uh, this book coach? Tell, tell me how. <laughs> well, you can go to my website, joshuadolazal.com. That's spelled dole as in the pineapple, Z is in zebra, A-L, 
substack.com, or you can look for my substack, the recovering academic, joshuadolazal.substack.com, or you can just send me an email at dolazaljosh at gmail.com. And I would be happy to set up a consultation for anyone with a large project like a book. Just uh, talk for 30 to 50 minutes and see if I can be helpful. This conversation would be kind of a good barometer of that as well for someone listening. Yeah, and exactly. It, it's proof of concept. If if you present your problem to me and I can give you some workable tools and a, and a plan that sounds good and it seems like we hit it off, then there might be a future there. Beautiful. Lovely to talk with you about uh, this interesting... Uh, is it new? Is book coaching new or is it? Is it? <laughs> Relatively, yeah. yeah. I, I think the last 10 years, maybe it's become more common. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the competition in the commercial marketplace and the opacity of how those gatekeepers work sometimes, I think, optimizing your odds to, to land an agent. Thanks again. Well, thank you, Nigel. Thanks for having me.